0: Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone. Good morning to everyone who is watching online. Let me invite us all together, as we do each week, to open up our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, still page 991 in a Blue Pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to follow along uh, with us there. Well, there is a question that every generation of the church has had to respond to and think about how to respond to over the last 2,000 years. Uh, This is a question that I imagine many of you have asked yourself at some point in your life, or at the very least have been asked by somebody else. And the question is this. How is it that the way of Jesus Christ can be the only way? By the way, we're just diving straight in this morning, head first, all right? So no pleasantries. Uh, We're we're going all in deep right away. How is it that we or anyone really of any religion can possibly claim with a straight face that your claim on truth is the truth, the only truth? And there are really all different variations of this question. Um, I I think um, for families who are raising up their... Uh, Or for families who are raising their children in the church, uh, children will at some point, age four, five, six, seven, somewhere around there, uh, will begin to ask um, and start to connect the dots in their own mind. Like like if, if we say we're right about Jesus, does that mean everyone else is wrong? How do we treat people or view people who don't believe what we believe? You mean not everyone believes in Jesus? How do we think about that? Um, I don't know about you who uh, have children, but my daughter who's six, um, she she has uh, found a way to, to ask those questions right before she falls asleep, uh, or or like as, as I'm about to kind of leave, or uh, literally last week, it was some variation of that question, like as I'm about to drop her off in kindergarten at school, and it's like, I no, I can't answer, like, it's a good question, it's a good question, not now, uh, but later, but later. Uh, how do you answer when your kids start asking? As... Uh, We grow up and become teens and young adults and especially those growing up in the church and start forming deeper relationships with other people in their lives and non-believers who get exposed to the world and different worldviews within the world and a nagging doubt can begin to rise and they might be embarrassed to ask their parents that like I don't know if I can ask them this like how is it that he can be the only way? What about those who have never heard the gospel or live and die and never hear about Jesus? How is it that they are really responsible? Can we actually say that they're responsible to know Jesus when they've never heard of Jesus? How? Um, Moving along the spectrum, you have non-believers who, to this day, genuinely believe that religion is the most divisive thing on the planet, that it is a harm for human flourishing, and that religion is the root cause of a lot of suffering, and that believing that there's only one way to live this life and there's only one truth, is the, one of the biggest things to blame for human suffering over the last 2,000 years. The, the exclusivity of the gospel, you could call it, the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, always has and always will be an important matter, um, I think has become increasingly difficult for Christians in the U.S. to profess it. Uh, there's an organization, a publisher called LifeWay, Um that they put out a massive research poll every two years. It's called The State of Theology in the U.S. Um, It's online, and you can look at it and uh, all the kind of questions they ask. And I would say this. uh, I've been following it probably since 2016, and every two years it gets a little bit more alarming uh, with The State of Theology in in the U.S. And uh, here's a couple stats. In 2022, so they just did it last year, 58% of professing believers in the U.S., this is not just U.S. adults in general, but professing believers in the U.S., 58% say that God accepts the worship of all religions, not just Christian worship. And 38%, so now we're talking about almost four in ten professing believers, think that religious belief is really just a matter of personal opinion, not objective truth. And those percentages every two years tick up, tick up, tick up. And you could digest polls and studies as you wish. I have a love-hate relationship with polls. Like when you say "professing believer," what does that mean? That could be a wide net. Whoever they say, whoever says that they're a Christian, uh, and, and why do you say that? But it remains clear that it has become increasingly difficult for Christians to claim that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. And I say this, understanding you might be here this morning, and profess to be a believer, and say, like, I, I kind of struggle with that. I. I've had nagging doubt, and maybe you've been open about that, but more likely, maybe you haven't been. I'm thinking about middle schoolers and high schoolers in the room. Maybe you start thinking about these things, and you wonder, can I, can I talk to my parents or anybody about these doubts? It feels off to believe that. Ironically, it kind of feels unchristian to believe that Christians are the only ones who have a claim on exclusive truth. Um, maybe there are others in this room who... You would say you believe it, but if you're honest, you're fearful to ever convey that belief to others, Uh, afraid to admit it if asked, and might struggle to say, I don't know how I would defend that, even if I let it be known that I believe that. Uh, Plus, in the day that we're in, in 2023, doesn't it seem more loving to just say, hey, who knows? Like, who am I to say? Who am I to project my belief on others? That's kind of the, 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 the line we've all agreed on, that we can just kind of say that and everyone would just accept it. So this is real. Uh, this is a, not a hypothetical struggle for us. It could be real to feel stuck when it comes to believing, owning, and proclaiming exclusive truth. And while I want you to first hear me say that it's okay for you to struggle with that, and if you do struggle with that, you do not need to feel shame with some of the nagging doubt that you feel. I want to affirm that while also encouraging you, we don't have to stay stuck. And so here's a phrase I want to inject into our spiritual veins this morning. You ready? Here's a phrase that I want to just inject in us and then we'll draw it out and unpack it from our text this morning and the phrase will be on the screen. The church has an exclusive message with an inclusive mission. Inject it in, let it spread through the veins. The church has an exclusive message with an inclusive mission. And if any of those gets changed, the church will lose its footing. Believers will lose its footing. And this will shape much about our everyday lives and certainly much about our churches. So we are continuing in our series in 1 Timothy this morning. Guys, we've made it to chapter 2, cruising along. Cruising along in 1 Timothy, it took us five weeks to work through chapter one, and if you have not been here for any or all of those weeks, it's okay. Here's the 30-second flyover of chapter one. Don't time me. The Apostle Paul is writing a letter to a man named Timothy, who had previously been sent by Paul to the city of Ephesus, to the church there, to address some major issues taking place in that city, and... At the top of the list, Paul was distraught at how leaders in the church, the church's own elders, were teaching a different gospel. The gospel meaning the good news, the the good news that God saves his people through grace alone, by faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. So in chapter 1, Paul charged Timothy with three things. First, guard the gospel. Second, celebrate the gospel. And then third, fight for the gospel. That's chapter one. And that's where it ended that Timothy may lead the church to wage good warfare. To fight the good fight of faith. And a fight that does not overcome the world by force, that you might naturally think. But a fight that reaches the world with the love and compassion that flows from a gospel of grace. So that's chapter one. And now there'll be a shift in chapter 2 where he will now unpack. How can that happen? How can a church wage good warfare? How can a church be structured? Who should lead it? What should gathered worship look like? And all in all, in these now coming chapters and passages, he'll be drilling home the truth that the church is called to be a compelling witness to the world. For the church has an exclusive message with an inclusive mission. And that brings us to our text this morning, 1 Timothy 2. We're going to cover verses 1 through 7. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles, in faith, and truth. The church has an exclusive message with an inclusive mission. And again, if either of those are changed the church is lost. Uh, Paul is, in fact, frustrated because the teaching of the church that uh, is happening in Ephesus can be described as an exclusive message with an exclusive mission. Hang with me here. That there's these secret genealogies and myths that he talked about in chapter 1 that they're really indicating the fact that only a few can find this. Exclusive message, but only for an exclusive few that could find it. And it's interesting that today, 2023... The rising sense in our world is to promote an inclusive message with an inclusive mission. Everyone finds their own truth. Whatever works for you, you do you. It's an inclusive message with an inclusive mission. But God calls us, again, to an exclusive message with an inclusive mission. And the way that this ought to be displayed in our churches begins with the foundation of prayer. Uh, Last week, Pastor Matt Peoples uh, preached in uh, the passage before this. If you were here, if you listened, he shared tools with us that we can uh, use to wage good warfare. That um, phrase, good warfare, was in the passage from the end of chapter 1. And Matt shared four defensive tools and four offensive tools... To wage good warfare. Do you remember what tool number one was for both lists? Pray. It wasn't a typo. It's for both defensive and offensive. And Matt went there because he knew that in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul goes there. A local church is a praying people. There should be no such thing as a non-praying church. Right? That would like, that'd be like saying, man, I'm a massive sports fan, but I've never heard of the Super Bowl. What do you mean? What's the Super Bowl? Like, it wouldn't make sense. A non-praying church doesn't make sense. And notice the phrase that connects chapter 1 to chapter 2. He says, First of all, then. Here's his transition. Right? Other translations say, Therefore. Since I've just told you, Timothy, to guard the gospel and celebrate the gospel and fight for the gospel, first of all, then... Pray. Pray. Exclusive message, you see. But an inclusive mission. That your role as a believer and our role as a church is participating in God's mission of making disciples of all nations. And that mission begins with prayer. Like, just think about that for a second. I know it's familiar to us, but just just go here with me for a second. The global work of God. To the ends of the earth. God's work. And the first... And most important role you have in that mission requires you to go nowhere. Like you don't even have to get out of the bed in the morning to participate in the most important thing God has called you to do. And there's not just a certain place where you can pray. And there's not just a certain time you can pray. Man, you can work from home. Like we love that now. All the hours you please. Pray. And then as a church, when we gather together, the way that we value and prioritize and treat prayer, when we gather, says something about how we view God's mission and our role in it. And so that, I mean, just that we would long, like, like oh, that we would long to continually grow in our desire and our practice of prayer as it relates to the mission of God in this world. That we are a local church, man, we're just on a corner in Ridgewood. But we have an eye towards the global work and global spread of the gospel. And that is first and foremost not achieved by just doing more or being better or being more gifted or more charismatic, but it's being so rooted in the gospel and understanding the magnitude that the gospel has in people's lives that might lead us to a crying out for that gospel to spread. I think many people miss how the Lord's Prayer speaks directly to this. Um, All of you, I'm sure on some level, even if you don't have a huge church background, um, have heard or understand or are familiar with the Lord's Prayer. We'll project it up on the screen. It's from Matthew 6. It says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There are six requests in that prayer. Three requests that are vertical, requests of God, on behalf of God. Three requests on behalf of ourselves. The second of the six requests is the phrase, your kingdom come. And to quote John Anwu Chekwa, who in his book Prayer, which I've definitely quoted before, probably have quoted this passage before. He says this, it'll be on the screen. Your kingdom come is a prayer for the success of the gospel in the world. Did you know that? that? That we know that the gospel has changed us. And so we plead for God's kingdom to be extended through the gospel going out to the ends of the world. We are tired of the world we live in. And we long for something better. We long to be where God's rule is recognized and adored. God has promised this will happen. And this promise stokes our longing an exclusive message, the the gospel, but an inclusive mission to to the ends of the earth. And and, and so here's a reminder as much to myself as to anybody else. um, If prayer is boring to you, can I encourage you with this? You're doing it wrong. And it's not that there's only one way to pray, but God invites us into the story of the global mission of what he's doing. First of all, through prayer, you get to play a part and I'm, I'm, I'm being serious. I'm not saying this to guilt you. And I have admitted from this pulpit multiple times, prayer is not naturally easy for me. It never has been. Maybe it will change, but it is still something that is not naturally easy for me. The desire to pray is still my first battle. And there are other aspects of the Christian life, for whatever reasons, that become naturally easier to me than prayer. And so I need the motivation, and I need the reminders. And if you need those reminders, man, this is your day. Welcome to church. (laughs) Today is our day, because Paul is going to provide some motivation for us. Why should we pray? For this, he gives three reasons. Starting with number one, we pray because God desires all to be saved. Paul says, first of all, then, pray. And did you notice, if your Bibles are still open, we're going to keep going right back to it throughout this sermon. He gives four words that can be interchangeable with prayer. Supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings. And commentators have tried to unpack those words and say, why is he choosing those words? I think Paul's just trying to get a point across. Do you get it? Pray. Prayers, supplications, intercessions, thanksgivings. Do you get it? Yeah, Paul, we get it. Pray. Pray for who? All people. There's an important point here that will come up again throughout the passage. That Paul's use of all in these verses is to indicate all kinds of people. All kinds of people. He is not saying believers are responsible, that every believer is responsible for praying for every single person on earth. But rather, that each believer is called to pray for all kinds of people why because there is no quote-unquote kind of person that god will refuse to save like no one is off limits therefore vary up your praying diet right that's what they tell us right a healthy diet is a variety diet i don't know maybe they're changing their mind now but in general that's what people have said in the same way prayer vary your diet on who you pray for regardless of race Or skin color, or nationality, or socioeconomic status, or area of your neighborhood, or region of your country, or country in the world. Let none of those be obstacles that would stop you from praying for all kinds of people. This is what it is to have an inclusive mission. Pray widely. And to make his point, Paul specifies one category for us. Again, back down, he says, pray for kings... And all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Why did Paul go there? Why kings? Why people within the government and those in high positions? Well, if you recall back in chapter 1, when Paul shared his own testimony, uh, he talked about how God saved him in order to make the point of how amazing God's grace is. And what he essentially says was, guys, God saved me, even me, by his grace. And if he can save me by grace, believe me, he can save you too. And I think now he's in a similar line of thinking when he says pray for all people, even kings and those in high positions in your government. Because if you pray for them, my guess is you'll pray for everyone. Because in the first century, the leaders of that day were enemies to the gospel. In the first century, there were no Christian kings, not yet. There were no Roman leaders in high positions who were believers, not yet. In fact, Paul is writing this during the reign of Nero, who's the emperor of Rome, who would be the emperor in place when he would be killed in Rome a few years after writing this letter. And yet Paul says, don't overthrow them. Pray for them. This is good warfare, you see. This is good warfare in the upside down kingdom of God. On one hand, praying for governing leaders to promote peace in their land. Uh, Why did Paul talk about peace? Why do we want peace? Why why is peace good? Um, It's not because Paul wanted to live a cushy, comfortable life, right? Like, that's a temptation we face in the suburbs, let's be honest. Everything around here is catered towards your comfort. Maximum comfort. That's not, Paul wasn't looking for cushy and comfortable. But rather, he said, pray for a peaceful land because it's in the context of a peaceful country where the gospel can go freely forth. That if leaders promote peace and churches who uh, commit to spreading the gospel in those lands will now face less obstacles. And so it'd be better, it doesn't have to be a peaceful land to spread the gospel. I mean, if you had the choice, it would be better to not have to meet in fear that we have a security team at place, two men or women at every service, for a lot of purposes. But one of those is not that the government's going to come knock down our doors and tell us to stop meeting, like some of our brothers and sisters across the country. And this is the primary motivation for why we ask our men and women who lead us in the congregational prayer, as Brian, one of our elders, did this morning, To pray for our governing authorities regularly. Because we care about the spread of the gospel. And regardless of what our government leaders at the local level and state level and federal level, regardless of what they believe, regardless of whether you like them or don't like them, regardless of whether or not they even claim faith or not. I mean, we would love them to know Jesus, don't get me wrong, but we're going to pray for them regardless. Because we care about the spread of the gospel. And and so those prayers for them that you often hear from up here from uh, the men and women who pray from up here um, often sound like this. And these words will be on the screen. Grant to them, Lord, health, peace, harmony, and stability, that they may blamelessly administer the government which you have given them. Lord, direct their plans according to what is good and pleasing in your sight, so that by devoutly administering in peace and gentleness the authority which you have given them, They may experience your mercy. That's a prayer. Do you know who said that prayer? It was a pastor. It's a pastor who we know today as Clement. You know when Clement said this? In the early 100s. About 50 to 60 years after Paul died. And you, I mean, look at those words. I could have told you, that's what the person who prayed last week prayed, and you go, yeah, I I would believe it. Like, Brian could have prayed those exact words this morning, and you would not have blinked an eye. Like, oh, that's a weird prayer. Why? Because we are familiar with that kind of praying. That's a timeless truth. And it's one thing for Brian to pray that now, again, in a land where we can freely gather. It's another to pray it when the people you're praying for want to kill you. In fact, church history holds that Clement was arrested for preaching the gospel. He got, you know, a little too famous. It grew a little too big. They felt threatened by that. He got arrested. He got sent to a work camp within the Roman Empire. In the work camp, it led to a revival because there were weird healings taking place. And prisoners started to come to know Christ. Don't like that. So what they do to Clement? Again, according to church history, they put him in a boat, they brought him to the middle of the Black Sea, they tied an anchor around his feet, and they threw him in, and he died. So why would Clement pray like that for even them? It's good warfare in the kingdom of God. Why would Paul exhort us to do it today? Because, back down in your Bible, verse 4, this is why God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So God's desire becomes your desire. And when God's desire becomes your desire, you'll pray for all kinds of people for many things. But most of all, that you'll pray that God would bring people to saving faith, the knowledge of him. Um, one more point quickly here. Uh, verse 4 gets a lot of attention. If you're into theology... And arguments within Christian theology, verse 4 is a huge verse, saying that, and there'll be some people who say that this shows that God is a universalist, that all people one day will be saved, because, look, it says right there, God wants it. And if God wants it, God will get it. And if God will not get it, then he's not all-powerful, and I don't know if we should worship him as God. Um... Well, here's what I would just say to this quickly. This is also, by the way, a proof text for those who hold to Arminian or Calvinist views and like to talk and discuss that. I don't say I don't have convictions there. I'm just not really interested in digging into that aspect of it here. But I will say this. To say that this verse means that all people will eventually be saved regardless is a direct contradiction to the rest of the Bible. It's a contradiction to Jesus' own teaching who clearly says, all will not be saved, but only those who repent and believe in him. I think if Paul believed otherwise that God was a universalist, he wouldn't be telling people to pray for their salvation. Because what's the point? I said earlier the word all in this passage is best understood as all kinds of people. And so what I firmly believe, my cards on the table, is that God is the God of salvation. And I believe he is sovereign over all salvation. And nobody comes to know him unless he draws people to himself. And his desire is through Christ to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that there is no single kind of person Jesus saves, for he desires all kinds of people to come to know him. If you didn't care about any of that, then come back into the water. We're going to point number two. Since God desires it, we pray for it. And so vary up your praying diet. This is to be inclusive in the mission of your prayers. Now we go to number two. We're going to move faster here. God calls us to pray because Christ is the Savior to all. God desires us to pray because Christ is the Savior to all. This is where we are reminded that our inclusive prayers flow from an exclusive message. Our inclusive prayers flow from an exclusive message. We're okay with a crying baby, guys. We're good. All right. We're, we're, we can all breathe. It's all good. Verse 5, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Uh, The word for there, at the start of verse 5, is called a ground clause, meaning it grounds the statement. God desires all to be saved for or because there is one God. And there's one mediator between God and men, and his name is Jesus. And so prayer is the most loving thing you can do for all kinds of people. How can you love your neighbor? First and foremost, you can pray for them, because our chief desire for them is that they would know Jesus. That they would know Jesus, who is the one who can reconcile them to God. And so here is where we are reminded. We are exclusive with our message that only Jesus can save. Because Jesus himself said in John fourteen six, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We pray for all, inclusively, because Christ is the Savior to all who believe in him, exclusively. Right, and I mean, I'm telling you, just inject it into your veins. Don't forget it. Teach your children that we pray for all inclusively because we believe Christ is the Savior who, for all who believe in him exclusively. And when Paul says that Jesus is the mediator between God and men, he is saying Jesus is the only one who could do this. He's the only one who is eligible because he was both fully God and fully man. No one else can say it. Jesus is the Son of God from all of eternity. Um, eternally begotten and one with the Father and the Spirit there was never a time when the Son of God was not and this is the same Jesus who is the Son of Mary who took on flesh who was born in a manger this is Jesus you see the sinless one who was tempted in every single way but never gave in not once because he was God and it's Jesus the one who breastfed off his mom the one who learned the art of carpentry from his dad The one who was raised in all wisdom by both. The one who had a body that needed food and a body that needed sleep. This is Jesus, the God-man. There's none like him. Who, verse 6, gave himself as a ransom for all. Meaning, he willingly went to the cross. He didn't get tricked into it. He didn't get blackmailed. He willingly took the punishment that was due all kinds of people, past, present, and future, and died in order to forgive sin and cleanse us from the guilt and the shame that we all know sin brings about. Jesus, who was raised from the dead by the Father, declaring victory over the grave, and who right now sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us today as a mediator between us and the Father. So yes, this is an exclusive message. For it is the only message in the world, hear me, that says you don't climb the mountain to find your way to God. He came down from the mountain and he found his way to you. And it's exclusive because there's no message like it. And we receive him. And we come to know him. And then we love him and we follow him above all else. And if you have not received this exclusive message of the gospel, that is our primary hope for you. The best way I can love you is to pray for you. That God would open your eyes to that truth and that you would know that this is offered to you, his grace to you. And this now leads to the third and final point. God calls us to pray Because, number three, the gospel is preached to all. The gospel is preached to all. Paul writes, for this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, a teacher to the Gentiles. So just consider that phrase, he's a preacher of the gospel to who? To the Gentiles, which means all the non-Jews in the world, which means to the ends of the earth. I preached the gospel to the Gentiles. Exclusive message with an inclusive mission. And Paul was fueled by it. This is what he operated on. This is what got him up in, out of bed in the morning. This is what gave him purpose in the day. This is why he laid his head at night at rest, because he could trust God with an exclusive message inclusive mission. And in writing this to Timothy, he is ensuring that the church in Ephesus knows this, that it tells us that the gospel is to be preached to both believers and non-believers. To put that another way, the gospel once believed needs to be proclaimed and heard over and over and over again. You believe once, but then you need to be reminded of that over and over again. Like one of the major reasons we gather every week on Sunday is because you need to hear it again. Just like you need the sun to rise again to survive that day physically, so you need the gospel again to sustain your faith. And in our singing and in our praying and in our preaching and in our fellowship, the gospel is central. Because 2,000 years later, we need to hear it again. In fact, a little sneak preview to later in this series, Paul says this in 1 Timothy 4. It's just a couple chapters down the road. He says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Look, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. The gospel that saved you, if you believe, is the thing that will keep you. It's the thing that will sustain you and the thing that will deliver you to the end. It is the exclusive message from A to Z, from spiritual womb to tomb, from beginning to end. We need it again. In fact, most commentators and historians agree that verse 5 was a well-known creed recited by the early church when it gathered together. And so Paul, in writing this, is reminding Timothy, remember the creed, Timothy, that we say, I'll read it again, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. You see, creeds are concise, summary statements of the Christian faith that unify believers and remind us of what is of first importance, so creeds, when spoken together, spiritually form us. They form our children. They unite us around the truth of God when we gather together. Uh, so I've spoken, I think most recently in the fall, about how I've been praying about now for a couple of years, about incorporating early church creeds into our corporate gatherings. And i got to be honest with you, uh, 1 Timothy 1 and leading into 1 Timothy 2 has kind of pushed me over the edge that creeds center us in the truth of the gospel. And when we say them together, they remind our minds and they stir our hearts when we say it together. So, like, big announcement, breaking news. Starting next Sunday, we're going to incorporate reciting the Apostles' Creed in our gatherings. And I don't know how long we'll do it for. Man, this might be for the series. This might be a few weeks. We might never stop. But we will recite it after our time of singing when we are standing together And someone will come up, and we'll intro it, and it'll probably be a little awkward at first, and that's fine. And we will lead us in saying it together. And I'm going to be publishing an article on our Substack platform this week to explain further why. But it is a tangible way we will proclaim the gospel to one another each week. And it will serve as a witness to unbelievers. That when we say the creed together, we affirm that what we care about most is not the color of the carpet in this room. What we care about most is not the style of singing we sing in this church. What we care about most is not our socioeconomic status or the color of the skin in this gathering. What we care more about most about is this, the gospel. And we center ourselves in this. And so Paul commits his life to proclaiming the gospel to all. Meaning, once again, for a final time, all kinds of people. And by telling Timothy this, he's indicating that all believers, you today, 2,000 years later, are given the same calling. And our roles might be different, and our giftings are different, and the places we go are different, and the capacity we have is different. But our calling is the same, to make Christ known in faith and truth, and to be as inclusive as you can be. And there's no better story to be part of than this story of making disciples of all nations to the glory of God. I say this often, but I'm going to say it again. You know what this story means? It has no meaningless days. You have no purposeless interactions in your life. Not one. There's not a single wasted moment in your life when your story is wrapped up in this story. And with this exclusive message and inclusive mission, we begin with prayer. Prayer so I'm telling you, church, man, as we, as we close now, we got a part in this film. you got some lines in this script, and we can do so in confidence and assurance that the ending has already been written. And so I'm going to ask you to stand now as we prepare to pray and sing. Let's stand, and we're going to finish with this passage. Here's the ending of this story that's already been written. It's in Revelation 5, verses 9 through 10. As you hear this, think exclusive message, inclusive mission. Revelation 5. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the story that you have written And that is playing out before our eyes. We are humbled that you have given us a part to play. That your sovereign plan that will go forth chooses to include us. Chooses to include our prayers. Lord, I pray that we would embrace the mystery and beauty of that. And that we'd be faithful and have the courage to pray for all kinds of people. For even kings and those in high positions. For you desire all kinds of people to be saved. Lord, we thank you that you have saved us. We pray for those who you have not yet reached. And we move forward in confidence this week because of what you have called us to. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.